All right, good to see you all here this morning. And I'm going to start by just asking that you keep me in your prayers, especially today. Yesterday, my voice started to do funny things, and so here it is. It's all allergy-related, but anyhow, I'd appreciate your prayers. I feel fine otherwise, other than I just have these bad allergies here yesterday and today. So I can make it through all three, Sunday school, morning service, and evening service. I'm going to talk more quietly, so that means that you'll have to pay more attention, right? So it's a good practice for you too, right? All right, Will, could I ask you to open us in prayer, please? Great God and Father, we bless your name. Thank you for another day, another Lord's Day. We come to be fed by your teaching and by your word. We pray you bless this Sunday school hour and the following services. We pray for Pastor Miller. We pray that he would have the strength to carry on all these duties of his. Pastor Rockwell, help him, strengthen him, uphold him with your righteous right hand. Let's lift this day to you. Strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so there were some handouts going around. One is kind of our notes for this class, and we are on questions five and six of the larger catechism. So if you don't have one of those, if we run out of copies, I apologize for that. I can get you some later if you would like so that you can have them for your reference. By the way, if you're taking notes and you're doing what I encourage you to do, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to keep these. Make a binder, do something like that. Keep these for future study and reference. It's often good not just to be able to retain the knowledge and to make notes and to have the knowledge now, but to reinforce that and to be reminded of those things over time. And also, kind of like with journals, I don't know if any of you journal, but with journals it's kind of encouraging to look back and to see and read different notes that you may have made in the past and even where the Lord has grown you and developed your knowledge and thoughts there over time. And so, anyhow, I just want to encourage you in those things. The second handout is it's going to be a review that we're going to do here at the beginning. I thought I'd start printing these out. And no, we won't be, you know, when we get to question 100, we're not going to spend the whole class, because it's probably how long it would take, right? We're not going to spend the whole class going through the first 100 in recitation. But, you know, for where we are now, I thought that this would be good to continue to do that and also understanding that some of you may not have a full copy of the catechism in front of you. So let's begin here by going over, and before we consider five and six today, let's look at and recite questions one through four. 
I'll start us off, and then I'm going to ask that uh, some of you men just speak more loudly. Uh, well, all of you speak loudly uh, and uh, in your recitation so that I'm not uh, having to lead the whole time. But question one, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Let's say that again. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Question two, how doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually Very good. One more time. Question two. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of the nature of man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal them unto men for their salvation. Question three. What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule for faith and obedience. What is the word of God? The holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. Question four, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity by the consent of all hearts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their might and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade that they are the very Word of God. Very good. So as we come to question number five here, right, we continue to see this flow of where the divines are taking our thoughts and our study in the catechism, and that we begin the catechism in talking about our chief and highest end, right? We begin with and, and move on to saying, how do we know? that there is a God? How do we know that God exists? Our apologetic, right? Our defense of the faith in the existence of God. And in the answer to that question, we know and we uh, affirm that his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually right, reveal him unto us, right? God reveals himself to us in the words of scripture by his spirit. That is how we know him in addition, and, in, and even more fully, um, right, in addition to what we see in general revelation in creation. And so if we're saying that God reveals himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture, it is good and right for us to understand what is the Scripture, and therefore to distinguish between what is Scripture and what is not. Right? And so last week we talked about um, 
the books of the Old Testament, right? And I, I would like to sing the Old Testament song for you again today, but probably not a good idea for me to do that. And you probably have to put your fingers in my in your ears with this voice, but um, but the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the Word of God, and they only are the inspired Word of God. The Apocrypha, um, and we went through what books are included in that, right? The Apocrypha, though the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, post-Council of Trent in the 1500s, 1560s, um, made a determination and a decree that they should be considered scripture. Um, we recognize that the Lord, through the church, <coughs> has uh, confirmed that they are not scripture, right? And they do not... Uh, the God's people should not consider them as such. Can they be read? Sure, they can be read. But only as literature, right? Only as human writings and not the word of God. And how do we know that that's true? We, we know that that's true in, in terms of excluding books like the Apocrypha and anything that's not in the 66 books of our Bible, in part because of what we studied in question number five or number four. And that is the internal evidence and the external evidence that's laid out there wonderfully and summarized there um, in the words of the answer to question four, right? Because what is, what is not true in writings like the Apocrypha and what is true in the writings of, uh, the, um, of the 66 books of the Bible that we have is that we see the majesty in those writings. We see the purity of those writings, the consent of all the parts, even though there were many, many authors written over many centuries. All these books were written over many centuries uh, of time that all the parts agree with each other. There is no contradiction, right? There is no error. The scope of the whole lays out marvelously and beautifully uh, God's plan of redemption and salvation. It reveals God to us. It reveals many things to us. And it all agrees with each other in a wonderful broad scope. And what is the purpose that we see? What is the overarching message? It is uh, giving all glory to God. Right? And we see that God's word uh, the writer to the Hebrews especially teaches us, right? God's word is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And so it convinces and converts sinners, right? It's through the word of God, through the gospel contained therein, through the gospel that's proclaimed in your hearing and the hearing of those um, who would hear the proclamation. Um, that is what the Lord is pleased to use uh, to convert and uh, bring sinners, his people, to faith. But it is also to comfort, and we find that to be true too, right? We find the comfort and the edification to the saints, to believers, and to salvation. Uh, but ultimately, what do we see, and this is the tail end of the answer to question four, is that the Spirit of God bears witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man. So it is all of those pieces of those documents, and that is true. We see that to be true, but it is also, and importantly, this Holy Spirit, 
the work of the Holy Spirit, who not only is the uh, person of the Godhead who uh, worked in the hearts of those men to write the words that we have in Scripture uh, through inspiration, right? But he is the one that confirms. He is the one that works in your heart and mine to confirm that what we have in these books of the Bible is God's word, right? And so, um, you know, like Paul said, right, he, when he wrote to the saints, he said, you know, that he was thankful that the believers there, the saints, received his word, and it wasn't just that they received his word as his word, but that they received it for what it really was. It was the word of God. And so as we come to question number five, then it is important to say, okay, we have this marvelously multifaceted, um, beautiful uh, book that the Lord has given us in, in special revelation regarding himself and all that he would have us to know. And so what, does, what do the scriptures principally teach then? Right? What do we find? What is the doctrine of the word in the Bible? And so let's look at that together. You can look at your handout. Let's recite that together. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. All right, very good. So we see that there are there is a twofold work here, right? There is a twofold uh, teaching. And revelation to us, broadly speaking, generally speaking, right? And that is one, what we are to believe concerning God. So we've already considered and studied that God exists, that He is. We've already seen these wonderful pieces and truths summarized in in the Scriptures, right? Um, and so, what what are we to believe concerning Him? And secondly, then, what duty? God requires of us as his special creation. And so let's look first at what we are to believe about God. If somebody could grab Genesis 1-1, and if somebody else could grab Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, and just call it out when you get it, young people would be great. If you would like to read, young men, and ladies, if you would like to read, that'd be wonderful. Speak up, okay? Be good to uh, find the reference and to um, and to read the passage. So Genesis one one. We should have this verse memorized, right? In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what do we learn, and what are we to believe based on that verse regarding God? What is true of Him? He is a creator. He is creator. He always was. He always was. Yep, the eternality of God. Right? And being the one who always was, and... Um, and being the only one who always was, right? He is the only one who then could create, right? And to create the heavens and the earth. 
All right, Exodus chapter 34. You got it? Go ahead and read it. Very good. Very good. So what do we what do we see here? What do we learn about God? And maybe even consider it in the context in which we find it there from the beginning of chapter thirty four. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I don't know if everybody heard that, but his justice paired with his mercy. Right? If you look back at 34, verse 4, and even back in the verse 1 and, and following, what was happening? Right? The Lord had called Moses to cut two tablets of stone. Right? Like the first ones. He says in verse 1, I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Right? And so be ready in the morning, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, present yourself to me on top of the mountain, and no man shall come up with you, let no, one, let no man be seen throughout all the mountain, let neither flock nor herd feed before the mountain. And so he cut the two tablets of stone like the first ones, then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And then the Lord descended, right, in the cloud and stood with him there. So we see the special presence of God. We see his justice paired with his mercy, but we also see that God condescends. We see God coming down and being present with his people in order to reveal, in order to uh, communicate important information about himself and important qualities about himself. The Lord did have to descend in the cloud and stand there with him, with Moses, right? But notice what he did when he stand there. He proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is what the Lord said. So here's this self-revelation of God that gives us really a multiple faceted in this mercy, right? In this aspect of mercy and kindness of God, as you look at verse 6 and following, what things does he reveal to us? He's merciful and gracious. He's patient, abounding in goodness and truth. Right? Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But by no means clearing the guilty. Right? All will stand before God. And if they're standing in their own righteousness, 
and their own sins on their account, they are guilty. But for those who are standing in Christ and stand before Christ in his righteousness, they are forgiven. Right? They have been cleared. They have been quitted. But he will by no means clear the guilty. So I think Travis's words there sum it up well. Justice paired with mercy. Anybody else have any other thoughts or, or pick up anything else in that passage? All right, Psalm 48. Psalm 48, and if somebody else could turn to John 20. Perfect. Go ahead and read it. Okay. So, so far, if we were to catch ourselves up here in these passages, we've seen God as creator. We've seen him as eternal, infinite, right? But we've also seen him as the God who is just, the God who punishes sin, but also the merciful, gracious God who is good and and is the definition of truth. But here what do we find then? In addition to that, what else do we find to be true of him? What's that? Worthy of praise. Absolutely. He is great, right? He is great. And so that wor- that worthiness of praise, right, isn't even just that um, it's some kind of he passed some minimal uh, standard or, or did something that was, oh, you know, thank you or that was wonderful. Or no, his greatness is also uh, paired with how much he should be praised, and and the the level and quality of that praise. Right? He is greatly to be praised for who he is and what he has done. And notice, it says, in the city of our God and in His holy mountain. Well, John chapter twenty, verse thirty-one. Who has that? Okay. Very good. So what are we to believe about God in John 20? What did you hear? Kiddos, what did you hear? Did you hear that passage? Who heard that passage read? Excellent. What did you hear about it? What, what truth about God and what we must believe about God did you hear? Excellent. Exactly. Yep. That Jesus is the Son of God. Right? An important truth. An important thing that we must know and believe. And one of the, that that is really the theme verse in the Gospel of John. Right? The purpose for why John wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that we would have life in his name. 
It is, it is the gospel. And so we, it is good. It is right for us. It is right for us. Yes, ma'am. Very good. Excellent. Um, and so it is right for us, though, to then have this knowledge and foundation and, and grounding about God and what we are to believe about him before and in order for us even further, should we say, in order for us then to understand um, what our duty is to him, right? Because he reveals himself to us in all of his grandeur and all of these facets. And then he says, I am your God and you are my people. And therefore, this is how you must live. And this is what you must do. So let's look at some pieces of that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And then if somebody else could turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Okay, go ahead. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require as much as to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Okay, very good. So what does God require of us? What do you hear? What is our duty before the living God? Loving obedience. Loving obedience. Right? Hear the words, and this is, it's important, right? The, the divines use the word duty rightly because it is a duty. It is not an optional thing for the people of God. It is these things are required of us. Things are required of us. As we read God's law every Lord's Day in worship, it is good for us to have the righteous and perfect standard and requirements of God before our minds and in our hearts. It is true here as well. And what does he require? That we fear him. Right? The fear of the Lord must be in our hearts and before our eyes. That we would be seeking to be faithful in walking with him. Right? Walking in all of his ways. He tells us what his ways are. He tells us the narrow way. And then he calls us to walk in it. When we fall, when we sin, he calls us to repent and to turn and to walk again in that narrow way. Right? And to love him, to serve him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, right? Getting down to every aspect is really what the message there is. There is no aspect or part of our being that can rightly not be focused and engaged in service to the Lord. Right? That's the message. Keeping his commandments, right? Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Keeping his law. And notice what this this is a, 
it's phrased in a question, right? And the question really is, do you not know that these requirements are for your good? And oftentimes, I think if we're honest, we would say that that's a struggle of ours to remember that and to accept it all the time. Because the ways of the world and the corruptions of our own flesh, the temptations of Satan try to lead us into a different thought and mindset, don't they? That the requirements of God are burdensome. The requirements of God are overbearing. His requirements are not reasonable. But he is the Lord, the sovereign creator of all that is and of us. He is the one that sets the standard. He is the one that enforces the standard. And therefore it is our joy as his people, again, as we love him, to do and to seek to do all that he requires with all of our hearts because we know that he is working all things for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. So I think it's helpful to keep that in mind. Even the reason for all of these things is for our good. All right. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Who has that? Anybody? So what do we hear about our duty in these verses? Somebody who hasn't offered a suggestion yet, or given a thought. Maybe from the bleeders back there in the other room. (laughs) Tim, I'm looking at you. What's that? Well, I apologize. My voice is a little messy today. So what do we hear? It, it, help, it is to make us wise, right? We see the work and the power and the, the uh, yeah, the work and the power of the Word of God, right? The work and the power and the Word of God and the benefit of the Word of God and what it is to be used for and good for. And that is on both sides, for both teacher and student. The teacher, of course, needs to be a faithful student of the word in order for him to be able to teach. But also the student needs to understand and to see the value of the word of God. The teacher's goal is to declare God's word and his truth the way God has declared it knowing that that is exactly what is needed for all of us to grow and to learn and to be sanctified, to mature, right? to do all these very things that were listed in this verse. But the student also has that knowledge in studying this verse and knows and comes hungry to the word because he knows that this is what the word will be doing and working in him by the work of the spirit. 
And so it is, it is a blessing. And so we need to be faithful in teaching. We also need to be faithful in learning. We need to be faithful in learning. And praying that the Lord would use the Word in our lives to bring about these very things, to grow us in wisdom and bring about these very things. Any other thoughts on that passage? All right, let me read um, Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember, this is the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer was blown away by what had just happened. Right? The, if you look back at uh, verse 26, right, there was a great earthquake. They were in prison. The keeper of the jail was responsible for guarding them. Right? And the foundation of the prison was shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The supernatural act of God. And the Philippian jailer was beside himself and worried because he knew that if something happened to them, that would mean his life. And so he was ready to end it himself. But what did Paul say? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And so what is the duty that God requires of man? It is in having a right understanding of God. right? And through the Spirit's work in our hearts that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we walk faithfully with Him. We teach His truths to our household. We see this promise though, right, that Paul and Silas give to this jailer great comfort, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, very good. Let's uh, proceed on now to question six. So, if the Word of God principally teaches what we are to believe about God and what our duty is, what do the scriptures make known of God? Let's say the answer together. The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. Okay, so really to sum it up, what's the focus here? The focus is what the scriptures teach us about God, the Trinity, and his decrees. Somebody, let's look at God and his being for a moment. John 4:24. John 4, 24. Somebody grab that. I love it. Yeah, very good. Isaiah 40. 
18 through 28. Somebody grab Isaiah 40, 18 through 28. And then a Hebrews 11, 6. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I spirit and those who worship him must work must worship him spirit and truth. Okay, very good. So what is true of his being? God is spirit. Right? He is a different being than us. Isaiah forty. Those are a lot of verses that give us a lot of information, but one, some big things that we hear about there. Not only God is creator, we considered that in the previous question as well, but we see that God is, what, he's transcendent. He's above all. He's above his creation. He is high and lofty. Right? He sits above the circle of the earth verse 22 says, right? Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, right? We're so small. We're tiny, right? He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. What else do you, do you hear in the, or did you hear in these verses regarding him and his being and who he is? He is the everlasting God, right? The Lord, the sovereign. He neither faints or grows weary. He is not subject to fatigue 
like we are in his being. We see his might, his power, right? His infinite understanding, his omniscience. Hebrews 11, verse 6. I got that one. You got that one? Go ahead. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Very, very good. So there is a belief in his existence. There is a belief in him being a rewarder. Right? Any other thoughts on that verse? Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to pick up the pace just a little bit. We're going to talk about God as Trinity. Okay, God as Trinity. Um, and as we do that... I want to also read a passage or portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, on God as Trinity, section 3. And this really sums up well what we believe about him as Trinity, right? In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Okay, three important words. Three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we see here in this, in this uh, section of the Confession... Really, a statement about his ontology. Okay, when we I'm going to go deeper theological here for a moment, right? We talk about the ontological trinity and we talk about the economic trinity. The ontological and the economic ontology is about his being, right? God and his being, and that's what we see in the first statement, right? In the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, those are who the three persons are. But the second statement is really about his economy and redemption. Right? Um, and so we see uh, both a statement about the, the uh, ontological trinity here and the economic trinity. Um, let's look at Matthew 3 verses 16 and 17 for a moment Matthew 3 16 and 17 go for it and when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay. So how does this help us? 
how does this passage help us to understand or to see God as Trinity? That's right. It shows all three persons at once. Right? It's the Father speaking down from heaven, the Spirit descending like a dove, and Christ, of course, in the water with John. And we see the connection, right? The Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. This is the great Shema. Can somebody read that? Go for it. Yeah, so what do we hear about the Trinity here? We, we see the unity of the persons, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? We see a focus on and a, a clear statement about its unity. So these other three in God is Trinity on your handout, I'll leave for your study uh, at a later time. Let's move down to God and his decrees, okay? So we have the... The God that is, we have the God that that creates, we have the God that who is our God, and we also have the uh, He is the God who uh, makes decrees and even eternal decrees. Let's look at Acts 15, 14 through 18 for a moment. Very good. So we see the eternal work of God, even in that last verse there. Known to God from eternity are all his works. The Lord has made decrees regarding man, regarding all that is really in his creation. And um, we see that even reflected in this quote that is stated there in the verses above 18. Any other thoughts on that passage before we briefly look at Isaiah 46? All right, let's look at Isaiah 46. I'm going to back up to verse 8 for context, and we'll read through 10. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So hear this, and as you meditate on this passage, this should really blow our minds, right, in terms of God and who he is, what he can do, and what he has done, right, and what he will do. Because he calls us in verse 9 to remember the former things of old, and he calls us to do so within the context and the understanding of him being God and him being the only God. There is none like him. Right? There is none like him. There is no other God. He is God, and he declares the end from the beginning. He declares from ancient times things that are not yet done. Right? So all things are unfolding. All things have happened in the exact time, in the exact way and measure that the, that the Lord desires. And we need to know that not only is God at work now, but God has been at work even before time. And we see this graciously as he reveals his decrees to us in a manner like this in Isaiah 46. All right, so to wrap up our time here this morning, I'd like to just have a little bit of discussion for a few minutes. Let's go back and look at question five again, and I just want to ask a question, get your thoughts. When the divines teach us and say that um, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, why, why do they set belief before duty. Why do they set belief before duty? Sam? Faith is the basis for godly living? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah, we have to know the root before we can see or carry out the fruit right, of the Lord's work in us. Right? So belief is set before duty rightly. That is the right order. What's wrong with the slogan that Christianity isn't a doctrine but a life? Has anybody heard that before? It's not a doctrine but a life. Do you see anything wrong with that? And if so, what? You have to know what you're going to say. The statement statement is a doctrine in and of itself. Yeah. Well, and also, we need to recognize that doctrine and life are not in opposition to each other. Right? To say it's not one, but it's the other between those two isn't accurate. 
And in addition, Scripture teaches that biblical Christianity is both doctrine and life. Right? It's not life forsaking doctrine. For doctrine informs life. Right? Doctrine teaches us and guides us as to how we should live. And so biblical Christianity is doctrine and life. It must be. It must be. Sometimes people in our world today would like to kind of uh, move away from the discussion of doctrine, right? Doctrine is too offensive or it's too, uh, it's too intrusive. But really, it is essential. It is essential. And so therefore, if we were to ask the question and answer it, uh, what is more important in the Christian life, belief or conduct, are they equally important? The answer should be yes. They're equally important and they serve different purposes. And so it isn't good for us just to go and sit under anybody's teaching. We need to be making sure that we are sitting under the true teaching of the Word of God that we may truly understand and, and have the Word of God be studying on our, on our own, even as families and whatnot as well, that, that we would know how we must live. So in question six, in regards to question six, look back at that real quick. And the answer to that, what are the four parts we can divide what Scripture reveals to us about God? What four things does that answer summarize for us and organize for us? They make known what God is, number one, right? The persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. So God reveals to us what he is in his being. He reveals to us um, who he is in Trinity. But he also then reveals to us his decrees, what they are, as well as how he carries them out and has carried them out. Very good. Any other questions about today's lesson on these five uh, questions five and six, or any other comments? All right. Well, let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. And as we prepare for worship, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would humble us and bring us before your throne together as your people with great joy and encourage us, Lord, and uh, be at work in us, giving us great zeal to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.